0: Welcome to another episode of the Baylor Law Criminal Law Society podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Farrell, and I'm joined here today by Emma Catlett. How are you doing today, Emma? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. And we also have a very special guest today who is a board-certified defense attorney out of Fort Worth area, uh, Mr. Benson Varghese. How are you doing today, uh, Benson?
1: I'm doing great. Thank you all for having me.
0: Great. Thank you very much for being here. So um, we normally kind of start these things off with uh, your story, how you kind of got from point A to where you are now. Um, So I'll hand it off to you and let you introduce yourself.
1: Well, I will start with just my legal career, although uh, the backstory is probably interesting. Uh, When I first became an attorney... I had a goal of becoming a prosecutor at the Tarrant County District Attorney's Office. So this was 2009, and the Tarrant County District Attorney's Office was then and had been for a long time the premier DA's office to go to. And I fell in love with criminal work and specifically prosecution during an internship I had uh, the entire third year of um, law school with the U.S. Attorney's Office. and. Understandably, it's pretty hard to get into the U.S. attorney's office right out of law school. So I said, hey, what's the best DA's office I could go to? Everyone said Tarrant, so I came to Tarrant. Well, at the time, Tarrant County had just opened the fourth uh, 32nd district court. So we had a new court that had just been filled. And between that court being filled with new prosecutors and being such a good office that no one left, the Tarrant County DA's office from 2009 to 2010 was actually on a hiring freeze. But I knew I wanted to work at the Tarrant County DA's office, so I convinced a judge to let me intern for her for about six months, and then I uh, talked my way into having a local defense attorney let me work for him for about six months. So essentially, I wanted to do what it took to keep my foot in the door, and as I like to tell folks that I hire now, I, my first year out of law school, I made first $10 an hour and then twelve fifty dollars an hour for the entire first year as a lawyer. But... I had this idea in my mind that I wanted to be a prosecutor at the finest DA's office. And ultimately after the hiring freeze, I was the first person that they hired. So they arguably it paid off to uh, stay in Tarrant County, get to know everyone, uh, make you know my work ethic known. And so that when it came time for that interview, hopefully that last year um, kind of spoke for itself. So ultimately got to the DA's office, And um, I tried about a hundred jury trials and I thought I was gonna be a career prosecutor. That was my goal. I thought maybe the pinnacle of my career would be becoming a federal prosecutor one day, but it was always prosecution. That's what I loved and that's what I thought I would do forever. Somewhere between, let's say the 80th and 90th case, I realized I was only learning incrementally, right? I didn't know how much more I was learning between the 80th case and the 85th case. You learn something every time you go to trial. And if you're trying good attorneys, you're learning something from the other attorneys. You're learning from the judges. You're learning from what the juries tell you. But it was very much incremental. And I knew I wanted more. One of the disadvantages of being at such a good office, again, was no one was leaving. So I knew at the rate that I was going, even though I had more trials than anyone else, that I was getting fantastic reviews. There was not a year that I was not either number one or two in my division. Um, I knew that to get to a place where I was trying the most serious cases would maybe take a decade and, uh, perhaps I was impatient, but I started looking at what other options I had. So I spent an entire year thinking about starting my own practice. Um, I don't come from a family of lawyers. I didn't really know any lawyers growing up. I didn't know the first thing about starting a firm. So I literally spent a year planning what I could do, what I could provide to the marketplace that was different, that was unique. And whether, although it's hard to believe, uh, even in 2009, 2014, people were still advertising in the yellow pages, right? So the market, at least in Fort Worth, was really behind the times. uh, And I knew I could take advantage of that. So uh, I hung a shingle, I kept my overhead very, very low. And I decided what I was going to do to make the phone ring was generate content. So I started writing blog posts, trying to answer questions that people would have. You know, if your buddy gets arrested in the middle of the night or your son gets arrested in the middle of the night for a DWI, you've probably never been through that before. You don't know where to look for answers. And there was a time at which attorneys thought their knowledge and their ability to walk you through that situation was their value. And that's what people should pay them for, is to answer the phone, give them that advice. And I kind of shifted to a democratization of information, knowing that what I'm doing is building trust. What I'm doing is giving people information for free, because ultimately, if they trust me and they call me and they know, I know what I'm talking about, Uh, I'm, I'm a straight shooter, By the time they call me, there's a much greater likelihood that they're actually going to hire me rather than just, well, I found his phone number and I called him, right? So that concept, at least in this market, North Texas even, was essentially unheard of. So I did something novel and I just started producing all this content. And over the years, I've written hundreds of articles. I still do. I still write very regularly. And of course, over the last few years, it's shifted to YouTube content and uh, even TikTok—just places where people are looking for information. And I can certainly talk to you more about you know what platforms make sense in terms of building business. What uh, platforms make sense in terms of you just have to get your name out there and develop some brand recognition. Uh, and I operate perhaps at a very uh, different or I have a different out, uh, outlook on what I want my practice to look like and kind of the ancillary things that I'm doing in addition to running a law practice. Um, so, for example, I'm, I have been for the last year building a law practice management software because I know what the pain points are for attorneys and I know I can build a better platform. So that's a product that I'm building that will meet the needs of lawyers and law firms most lawyers don't think of themselves as providing a product, right? We're we're a service-oriented field. And so I look at things and I say, well, I'm not just doing it because it might get the phone to ring. The more uh, I develop our presence, the more effect I'm gonna have, because to me, ultimately, things like having a good legal platform that you can run your cases on is a access to justice question, right? I know lots of people who, For example, take court-appointed cases. They're not getting paid a lot of money. They're providing a service to low-income people because that needs to be done. Well, it'd be great if those uh, attorneys who are providing assistance to low-income families also had a platform that they could run on so that they can run efficiently. They can provide more people uh, the justice that they're working towards, but they can also collaborate with other attorneys. And that's one of many things that I'm trying to develop in my software that other people don't have. But that's one of them is the ability to collaborate with other attorneys. There's no reason that, you know, an attorney uh, in a smaller jurisdiction um, is left behind or doesn't get the access to resources that someone in Fort Worth or Dallas has. Right. You want people to be equipped to assist their clients. And I think there's just so much that we can do to leverage software, leverage technology to improve the practice of law, improve access to justice. So that's. In a nutshell, what I've I've done, and um, I guess I should also say, we've been very successful. Uh, you know, I grew from hanging a shingle to I'm employ about thirty people now. I've got uh, between three practice areas, seventeen attorneys. Um, we, have, we have a lot going on, so we. I still only primarily do criminal defense. I've got a little bit of personal injury and wrongful death work that I do, uh, but my firm has grown into family law, personal injury, and criminal, and well, I guess I'll end with, if you're considering hanging a shingle, whether that's out of law school or later on at some point, you can make it exactly what you want it. Uh, so for example, I've got friends who only want to work four days a week and they want to play golf on Friday. There's nothing wrong with that. That's what they do because that's how they've set up their practice. Right. And that's the luxury of having your own practice. I, have a different vision, right? I have a vision that's probably different than most attorneys considering the fact that I'm also getting into the software space, but there's a pathway for that. And what I would encourage people to know is I was exactly at the middle of the pack in my my law school class. Um, I was not on law review. I was on top of the class, but there's always room for you to be successful if you put your mind to it. And there are lots of good people who who are going to be willing to help you along the way.
2: That's really interesting. So just from what you've been talking about, it sounds like, you know, building a business as an attorney is very different from building a business in other professions. You know, attorneys have a lot of different moral, ethical obligations, business obligations. So for someone who may be wanting to start their own defense firm or just any kind of firm, really, um, what kind of advice would you have for them?
1: Well, start with the question about starting a defense practice, um, and then I'll move into kind of more general advice. I know very, very few successful defense attorneys who did not start off as prosecutors. There are some, but being a prosecutor first is hugely advantageous. And the, the real reason for that is trial experience. I didn't go into this knowing that I'd become a defense attorney. I have even laughed at folks who suggested someday I might become a defense attorney. But the reason I know I'm good at my job and I know whatever happens, I'm going to be able to catch the ball, right? Nothing's going to fall through the cracks is because I have trial experience. Nothing trains you like going to trial. And it's just very hard to do from the defense side, unless maybe you're at a public defender's office where they have volume and they can give you the trials. But barring that, it's very hard to get trial experience. We have uh, one person, we generally hire former prosecutors, but we have one person we hired right out of law school, and um, not from a lack of trying, but it's hard for her to get even a trial a year. It's just much different on the defense side. Your, your client's lives are at stake. It's very, it's a very well thought out and hard to make decision to go to trial. There's a lot of risks for our clients, whereas on the prosecution side, well, if a person's not taking a reasonable offer, then you go to trial, right? And you just have the volume and ability to go to trial quite a bit more. So, if you want to be a good defense attorney, find a way to get lots of trial experience, if that's at a PD's office or um, at a prosecutor's office. More generally, in terms of starting a practice, um, I think you really have to first ask yourself what you want your practice to look like. Um, To operate at kind of the level I operate at, work life balance is kind of a joke. I really don't have work life balance. I work a lot, work all the time, but I make a point of when I get home, Um, let's say it's six o'clock from six to the time that my boys go down to sleep, I'm dad. And that's all I do. I won't answer the phone. I won't check emails. And in the morning, you know, while they're getting breakfast and getting ready, I'm dad. And that's time I've carved out for myself. Um, You have to ask yourself, do I want to work four days a week? Do I want to work a hundred hours a week because I'm trying to accomplish something? Um, Once you've answered that question, I would say the next thing you've got to do is spend a lot of time planning. I planned out, really to the last detail of how I was going to make this all work, I had no money. I borrowed $9,000 from my uncle and um, I just hoped and prayed the phone would ring. And of course, I'd been doing a lot of work to make sure it would ring. But those are nerve wracking days and weeks when no one knows you and you're hoping someone will call you and trust you enough to give you money to pay, to take care of the biggest problem in their life. That's nerve wracking. So when I say planning, what I spend a lot of time doing is finding ways to keep my overhead down. Um, so for example, when I started I started in a 9 by 12 office at, at a Regis, which these days everyone's heard of Regis. It's an office share concept where you can you go you know rent an office or you can even go by uh, offices by the hour. but it was a new enough space in Fort Worth that I got a Regis, office small office but it was right next to the conference room and regis makes a point of not labeling anything so when people walked in they had no reason not to think it was my space right um there's a way to to make yourself look established right because the alternative would be don't have an office meet people where they are meet at any other place some overhead i would say you need to take on because you're asking people to make a big commitment to you right Other things you want to keep as minimal as possible by using a Regis space. I didn't pay for furniture. I didn't go buy anything. The only thing I bought was um, a computer, right? So I had a computer. Um, Regis even provided the phone. So at the beginning, you're looking for ways to keep your overhead as minimal as possible and then not take on expenses until you can afford them. So, you know, the first time I hired someone, I thought that was a huge luxury. When I, moved into this space. Um, It was the biggest line item I could ever imagine having to commit to. And as you may find, if you start a a business, especially in a world of lawyers, uh, you're gonna have to put up a lot of personal guarantees. Um, I'm about to move into, so we currently take up 60% of the floor that I'm on right now. We've outgrown the space. I'm about to sign another lease that takes up the entire floor. on a different floor, obviously, um, because we need the space, but I am still, you know, nearly 10 years into this personally guaranteeing, meaning if this business goes under, you know, they can come after me for the remainder of the lease. And it's a big lease, Um, you know, so we're at a disadvantage sometimes as lawyers, because other businesses, they um, take in profits, they keep profits whereas lawyers typically the profits you take in go out the same year right you're going to you're going to pay your folks you're going to pay yourself you're going to pay your partners um it's not it's not the type of business where hey we have um it's cash flow business it's not the type of business where you're just shoring up money um and that affects the decisions you make in the future when you're asking people to for example sign a lease but planning is so important um At the stage that I'm at right now, I have to predict what my needs are going to be in the next three to six months and hire accordingly. But at the beginning, you want to be on the slow end. You really need to say, I'm going to put in as much sweat equity as possible and do as much on my own as possible. And that's, again, where technology can really help you. Um, There's so much that if you use technology, you can save yourself from having to do kind of the old way. You'll be more efficient. You won't lose your files. You'll have ways to notify yourself uh, or remind yourself of upcoming deadlines or just client touch points in the criminal space. For example, it's common for nothing to happen uh, with a case for several months, but I don't want a client sitting there for several months wondering what's going on. Um, So just, I would say planning, using technology, looking for efficiencies, keeping your overhead low are all kind of primary uh, considerations as you're Thinking about hanging in a shingle.
2: Yeah, that's great advice. Um, this is kind of backing up a little bit, but could you tell us about your time at Tarrant County and um, you know what divisions you were working in and what that time was like for you?
1: Absolutely. So um, I worked under Joe Shannon; he was the DA at the time. Um, I left before Sharon Wilson became the DA, and of course now Phil Sorrells is the DA. So I'm going to talk about my time under a different administration because I. I think it's probably common knowledge. There have been some struggles during the Sharon Wilson administration. Hopefully, Phil Sorrells is bringing back. Um, He's stated his goal is to bring things back to the way they used to be. But the way they used to be under Joe Shannon and before that, Tim Curry, um, it was a phenomenal place to work. There was so much experience at the office. Uh, you have court chiefs that had been there decades. Um, they really prided themselves on trying to do the right thing, and to be open and honest about what they were doing. So they didn't believe in hiding the ball. Um, they really valued you know, doing the right thing. It wasn't about just getting convictions. It was about being fair in the process. Um, not that any office is perfect, but that was certainly what they taught and what they expected of you. My my chief, um, Richard Alpert, who you guys know, was um, never one to question you if you lost a case. He might ask what you learned from it, and uh, but he would never criticize you because if, as long as you believed in the case, we. I can remember one instance where um, a prosecutor said something along the lines of, "Yeah, I don't, I don't even know if that guy was guilty. I don't. I just wanted to see what a jury would do." Well, that's a, a terrible thing for a prosecutor to say. Don't go to trial. Uh, don't prosecute something you don't believe in. Uh, but barring that, as long as you believed it was a righteous case, no one would ever criticize you for losing a case. It was very much meant to be. A training grounds. So um the office recognized that there was so little room for promotion um that they started giving us so I was always in misdemeanor I, because again no one left. Uh they started giving us felony opportunities. So I had the opportunity to try about 10 of my cases with felony prosecutors. And of course they gave us other things like felony probation revocations and things like that. So They recognized the downside of being a good office and they didn't want people to stagnate. Um, There was also room for, you know, I I was pretty hungry. I wanted to try as many cases as possible. There were others who didn't want to try as many cases as possible and they got put in slower courts because some judges don't try cases that often. So it was really room for you to fit in wherever you wanted um, and whatever your goals were. Uh, In the Sharon Wilson administration, there was a lot of turnover, I want to say, maybe 90% of the office turned over during her administration. Um, And so what happened was the um, the trial experience that existed, the attorneys who had so much both institutional knowledge, but just experience was kind of lost over those eight years. Um, Not to say there weren't good attorneys there, but everyone will agree they lost a lot of phenomenal people. Fortunately for me, a lot of them came to work for me and I benefited from that, but um, they're trying to rebuild that office now. They're bringing in people from the outside, former uh, prosecutors, people who went on to be defense attorneys. So they're trying to rebuild a lot of what um, was lost. So I'm very optimistic about um, what Tarrant County is going to become. And I hope it becomes what it was, which was kind of the beacon for, hey, this is where you need to be if you really care about trying cases and doing things the right way. Um, And so uh, one of my former uh, employees partners is over there as one of the deputy chiefs. So I get to talk to him and I know what he brings to the table and people that I served on the defense lawyers board are um, over there. So Phil has brought in a lot of people with different viewpoints, unique viewpoints, defensive viewpoints. um, And he's, he's trying to build Uh, back something that's really uh, worthy of uh, pride and uh, again trying to be the go-to place. So there was a time when I was hesitant to recommend people go to the Tarrant County DA's office. Um, That's no longer the case Um, and in fact I've talked to them about you know becoming a feeder for the DA's office because we have interns come through here all the time and of course uh, if they do good work, we want to let other people know they do good work and try to help them with their careers. So, I'm hopeful, and you know, for the folks that are considering Tarrant County DA's office, I would say right now is a great time to apply and get in there, even if it's for an internship and uh, get to know the people. You'll find Tarrant County is a very small community of lawyers, and always remember your reputation is everything. So, even if you go up for an internship, um, just you know mind your P's and Q's and, and try to do a good job. And if you, you know, interview and interview uh, doesn't result in an offer, don't be discouraged. Um, Tarrant County historically has always welcomed people to keep applying uh, because you just never know when an opportunity might come up.
0: Yeah, that's great. Um, So you kind of mentioned that you have uh, internships as well. I don't think we've talked to many defense attorneys that, Have an internship program. Um, What does an internship at your office look like and uh, how would that differ from an internship in a DA's office?
1: So, when you're an intern at the DA's office, your experience is going to be dictated largely by what court team you're assigned to. Some court teams are going to put you to work. So, for example, you might be writing grand jury summaries. That's a very common uh, task that interns are given. Other court chiefs are More lax, and you might just be doing a lot more observation of what the attorneys are doing. You might sit and dock it, you might watch a trial, but it may not be as much grunt work. Um, Our internships are paid internships, um, and with that comes uh, an expectation that you're actually working here. So, I try to, we are very candid and transparent with anyone that applies to our office that there's a lot of the internship that is not glamorous. So an intern will typically at my office help us do the preliminary pass on cases. So that means we get evidence and they start reviewing it. Um, So that might be offense reports, videos, just whatever we get in discovery. Um, We have an intern, currently we have an internship director. So there's one full-time person um, that sits with the interns and kind of walks them through um, all the basics of criminal law, right? Because sometimes you come in and you really don't know anything about criminal law, um, or even what to look for in an offense report. Depending on um, you know what they review and summarize, there are opportunities, of course, to talk to the attorney about, "Hey, I saw this in a, in an offense report. Um, what do you think about it? Or you know, does it give rise to maybe a motion to suppress?" So you'll have some conversations um, along those lines. Um, we try to make a point of uh, finding fun things to do, but I'm, I'm candid. It's not like a civil firm where they're whining and dining you, mostly because we don't it's hard to find the time and we're not built out the way that I would imagine a, um, you know, an AmLaw 100 firm is built out where they've got people dedicated to that. Um, we Last year, we were really good about this. This year has been incredibly busy, so we haven't done it as much in the last couple of months. But on Wednesdays, we have a training meeting over lunch, which is the entire firm. We'll get together and we'll just cover a topic of interest. And uh, that might be a topic in criminal law. It might be, how do you prepare a grand jury packet? It might be, are you going to use TikTok in your practice? It's just whatever people want to talk about. And of course, we'll have that planned out and we'll do a training on that. And then All of last year, kind of Friday afternoons, um, let's say three o'clock, we would have kind of a social hour, which was more just folks get together, they talk, they might have an adult beverage, um, but more relaxed time uh, to just interact with each other. Um, All of our interns sit together um, in what we call the war room. Um, So at any given point, there may be five or six people back there and that's throughout the year as well. They're generally law students every once in a while, you know, a friend of someone will ask if a high school student can come in and help us with social media or something like that. So occasionally we'll have, um, I said high school, I meant undergrad, an undergrad student come in, but it's typically law students um, who come in and um, are doing kind of a lot of discovery review. Um, The other thing that we really um, focus on is anytime one of our attorneys are in trial, essentially the entire crew of interns goes to watch. Now, they may not all go watch at the same time, but three or four might go one day and then the other two will go the next day. Um, but we really do emphasize that because again, we believe trials are the best way for people to learn. And um, it's hard, even when we have 30 year bar card um, students, it's hard to get an opportunity to line up Right with someone's internship, where they've been able to work on it and make use of their third year bar card, but to at least go watch trials. So we're in trial regularly. And um, we make a point of, hey, even if we're not caught up on our work, you need to go watch trial because that's not an opportunity you often get. Um, and and that's paid time, but it's something we think is valuable. And I think uh, the interns that have been with us have, have liked. I think it's a pretty, uh, I think it's a pretty tough internship because you're doing so much work, but everyone that has interned here has loved it. They've kept in touch. Um, they, I think what people value is the ability to work with really seasoned trial to, trial attorneys. So people like Christy Jack that I have the good fortune of working with, you know, for someone who's in law school to have an opportunity, even if it's an afternoon to go talk to Christy or watch Christy in trial. Um it means a lot to them. It's again, not an opportunity that you get a lot of places. It's something that I covet is, and have always coveted the opportunity to work with really great people. And so even though it can be a lot of work, um, sometimes mundane work, because who likes watching their fifth shoplifting video? Um, people, I think, get a lot out of it and um, enjoy might be a a hard word to use, but I, I think people have at least enjoyed their
0: so- Kind of moving away from that, I remember when we first met, um, we talked a little bit about your use of social media and uh, how you have seen that sort of have an impact on the criminal justice system, whether that means uh, it's been helpful for your clients or detrimental to your clients. Um, can you kind of explain how you've used social media to um, impact your cases, I guess?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um it's hard i think for even me um which was someone who's still in law school to imagine it was not that long ago that attorneys were not even allowed to advertise so when you become a practicing lawyer you're going to be working with attorneys who remember that time it was a part of their careers so to go from no advertising to advertising and seeing all the terrible tv commercials um to kind of where we are now where everyone, everyone's grandmother has social media, right? There are probably more grandmothers on Facebook these days than there are uh, people of a much younger demographic. We, both as trial attorneys or attorneys who are trying to get business in the door or attorneys who are simply protecting people who might be making uh, really inappropriate or detrimental comments or uh, videos on social media, uh, have to understand how people receive information these days um, and just accept that part of it for what it is. We can't change how people choose to absorb information. It's it's the primary reason that um, I moved from just writing content to writing content and making YouTube videos or creating TikToks um, because that's how people consume information. Uh, Going back to kind of what I started with, I really do think that giving people information is extremely valuable, not because they're going to need me necessarily in the future, but simply as a public service. There are things that people need to know. I have too many clients that do silly things that if they had just been better informed, they might not have made those mistakes. Um, You know, a typical example is someone meets um, a person on a dating website like Tinder and it says you have to be this old to be on Tinder. Um, Well, some people rely on that and make decisions that end them or land them in uh, the crosshairs of a prosecutor because someone lied about their age when they got on Tinder, right? And so that's a silly example, but to tell people, hey, you can't rely on the mere fact that they were on a social uh, on a dating website that requires you to be 18 plus. You can't rely on that as a legal defense um, or to tell people, hey, you can be convicted of driving while intoxicated, even if you're not at a point of weight, which is what many people think um, the only way to be convicted of a DWI is. Helping people is an important part of what we do. And so uh, social media has been really important. To us to give that information out. Um, In turn, it builds up our credibility. Um, I certainly think it does help the phone ring. um, And when the phone rings, it helps people feel like they can trust me, right? You're not watching a 30-minute video on DWIs that I did unless you have a DWI, right? So that that person who's watching that video is getting value out of it. If they're in the North Texas area, they might call me. Um, So it's not so much driven by views. Uh, Views is a little bit of a vanity metric, right? If that DWI video only gets 100 views, but again, it's a 30-minute video on DWIs, I know those 100 people were in need of that information. That It's legitimate. Um, By the same token, you've got to be, I'm not nearly as good as um, some of my staff in terms of sleuthing and finding out what is out there um, because you need to know what your client has put out there, but you also need to know Oftentimes what the accuser is putting out there, um, as you might imagine, a lot of sexual assault cases are uh, involve female victims and um, the things that they sometimes put on social media contradict the position that they've taken with the police or the prosecutor. Um, and so being able to find that information and then either share it with the DA or use it in a trial is very valuable. And so if you're not on social media or looking at social media, you're not going to know these things. Um, So in in just so many aspects, it's valuable. Um, I kind of touched on this earlier. You also have to understand it's just a very different metric, right? So um, you have to understand some metrics are just a pure vanity. How many people follow you on TikTok or watch your video Is really a vanity metric. It makes you feel good. But that's not really what matters. Um, What matters is, from a business standpoint, how is that resulting in business, right? Um, I don't think in the practice areas that I'm in, TikTok is ever going to generate a case for me, right? I might get one a year. I might get two a year. But that's not why you're on TikTok. You're on TikTok so that people think about you. Right, and so um, YouTube has two purposes. Some of my content is really deep, and it gets into a specific issue, and I and those tend to generate phone calls. Right, if you're watching a video on an expunction or your gun rights in Texas after a conviction, those people might actually call because again, who else is going to watch that? It's not entertaining the way TikTok is entertaining. TikTok is just. You get information out, great. People might remember you if they have a need, but you're really not banking on that. YouTube is a little more focused. Um, blog content, and the reason I still generate blog content is those are really people. But you're not you're not looking at what are the defenses for sexual assault unless you have that problem, right? And those people that call me um, tend to hire at a much higher rate. So you've got to do all of it. But you also have to understand, hey, I'm not going to spend an hour a day working on my next TikTok because there's just no return on investment of your time, right? But I might spend an hour a day or more working on perfecting an article that's really going to help um, someone in a situation. And and one of the things that I found over the years is attorneys rely on my my blogs quite a bit because when I write them, you know, I'm citing sources, I'm updating it when the law changes, um, I'm I'm including things that generally you only learn through experience. And so uh, it's gotten to a point where I can go to a legal conference in another city and an attorney will tell me, hey, I, I look at your blogs all the time. Um, and so that's the kind of reputation you want to build. That's how you want to use um, things like blogs and eventually social media. Uh, because it, those kinds of things do matter. and. Your audience isn't just, um, even on TikTok, your audience isn't isn't just, you know, the folks that watch it. Some attorney is going to watch it and you want the attorney to have a good impression of you, even if it's something they might not do themselves. I want them to say, hey, if I have a problem in Fort Worth, there's at least a guy that I can trust and talk to because when he talks, what he's saying is credible, right? So those are all the things you're thinking about um, as you're doing things on social media.
2: Yeah, that's great. We'll definitely make sure to link your TikTok and your YouTube channel in the description of the episode.
1: You're kind. Always welcome subscribers.
2: Um, well, it does look like we're starting to run a little bit low on time. I was just looking at the clock. Um, but is there any you know parting advice you'd like to give to students or current attorneys who are interested in going into the field of criminal law in general?
1: Um, I'll I'll answer that more broadly, not just uh, related to criminal law. But advice for any lawyer is you don't have to do things just because that's the way it's always been done. Um, I found that so many of my peers and so many of the folks that um, I respect for many other reasons, their legal prowess, what they bring to the table, their abilities as a trial attorney, they are hindered by this idea that, well, that's the way it's always been done. I'm going to keep doing it this way. Um That's just not the world we're in anymore. Embrace technology, leverage technology to um, improve your practice, be open-minded to it. I know it's it seems like sometimes it's hard to learn um, or hard to educate yourself on um, your options out there. That's part of it, is folks don't even know what their options are in terms of: hey, is there a better law practice management software out there? Is there a better way for me to communicate? A perfect example in my office is um, we relied on text messaging between the attorneys for years until I finally convinced everyone to get on Slack. And it's great, right? There's a reason Slack exists. Lots of efficiencies created by Slack. But we were doing things the way we'd always been doing things and not looking for other solutions. So I think... Part of what any good attorney needs to do now is just educate themselves or have someone else in the office educate themselves on the options, whether you change or not. Know that there are options out there um, and consider taking it. But yeah, that would be kind of my parting advice.
2: That's great. Thank you so much for joining us. I think this was a really informative episode, especially for people who are interested in maybe one day opening up their own practice.
1: Happy to have been a part. Thank you again for having me.
2: Thank you. And thank you to everyone who tuned in and we'll see you next time.